I look at the left, my left, and I look for for red. And I find that uh, this morning I forgot to put my red thingy on to signal. Okay, that today is not, it's not only today the day of love, right? But it's every day, day of love. So uh, I think it's, 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 so I scan in the room and I see that most of us uh, don't find any value in, uh, what's it, Valentine's Day, right? Um, But it's a big deal, isn't it? Or is it? It is not? Yeah? So where's your... Not in apparel. So it's in the heart. Alright, well I, I, I mention this because even though we are a place where rationality dominates, where scientific thinking, where the focus is on the head, we must make place for the heart. And of course in, uh, in Judaism, the heart is a symbol. It's the symbolic access road, the gate to the spirit, to our soul. And so the challenge for us is always to to find a balance between the heart and the head. It can't just be about the head. And so sometimes we must challenge ourselves to suspend rationality a little bit and allow sometimes for the heart to come to the fore how we feel how we relate to this institution differently from the rational head space because if I think of last year and the road that we have traveled just last year, I don't want to talk about nine years that we have traveled, of course you'll be aware that the 1st of January next year we celebrate 10 years of UJ. So we're building up to 10 years of UJ. And again symbolically that that is important. Again the rational side of us might say, Ish, you're going to spend, what is this, thinking of Parliament yesterday, how much did they spend? Six million. Are you going to spend two, three million rands on ten years of UJ? What's what's the value to be derived from it? And so yes, there's symbolic value that we can derive from ten years of UJ. But there is also a moment to pause and to say, goodness, look at this journey we've travelled for ten years together, so that we can connect again with the heart. And so last year was a tough year. It tested us. It tested us to the core of our being. It tested us. I said at the welcome of new staff earlier this week that
the day that I received the notice that an 18-year-old first-year student of UJ had kidnapped, hijacked and kidnapped a 21-year-old third-year student. Where's Amanda? Is Amanda here today? Third-year student, I think she was, on campus. Somehow managed to get her off campus in her car, in the boot, her in the boot. It was an extraordinary day. It took me personally to the depths, to the right to the core of my own being. Not even long after that, we learned that one of our female students was also kidnapped on a way to our campus in Soweto. To this day, she's still missing. Shortly thereafter, we got news that one of our students had been abducted or kidnapped downtown. That turned out to be a hoax because a month later she got back home to say, actually I just decided to hang out with my boyfriend. But nonetheless, those just those three moments in the life of the university, and I can go through a string of really challenging and traumatic moments. And yet we continued through you, through your labor, intellectual labor, professional support labor, various roles that you play in the university. We continued to build. We continued to focus on building here an outstanding South African and global university. A building process that we started in January 2005. We took the plunge, we said, let's see how we compare with peer institutions, domestically on the continent and worldwide, to see whether this building process, this construction process, which involves, yes, the rational side, but also the heart, passion and plans, to see whether that was on track, going in the right direction. And we were surprised. We were encouraged. We jumped for joy to know that actually we are top 4% university worldwide. Again, as I said earlier this week, I'm not sure how many of us were in the top 4% of our matric class in the country when we were in matric. Does that make sense? So if we had half a million writing matric, or even 100,000, those of us who are much older, writing matric, were we in the top 5% of our, 4% of our class? On the continent, all of those who wrote school leaving exams, Call it half a million, a million. Were we in the top 4% of our class? Worldwide, 50 million, 100 million school leaving exams. Were we in the top 4% of our class? Makes you think, doesn't it? 
that for UJ to find itself in the top 4% of its class is something to to celebrate, something to say, goodness, our building process. Passion and plans. Ambition, vision, plans. Implementing plans. And I know that uh, many of you think and believe that I'm a hard leader that I'm a demanding leader, that I continuously stretch our capability. And I appreciate that feedback. I received such feedback from two professors earlier this week by way of example to say, Vice Chancellor, you're too demanding. Can you just give us a little bit more room? And then I say, just look what we've accomplished. Just look what you've accomplished. Just look what each one of you has accomplished to enable your university that you love, that you're passionate about, to get itself in the top 4% of its class is absolutely extraordinary. And so you do need to not only receive congratulations from me as I give to you, but you need to give congratulations to yourself as well. To say, wow, this is incredible. This is something too. And by the way, we didn't set out to be in the top 4% nine years ago. We said, let's do the right things as best as we can, to the best of our abilities. Then we got the good news in the second half of December last year that in the economic block of Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa, 6,200 universities in that block, that in that ranking, US, uh, UJ got a 61 ranking. So in the top 100 in BRICS, just behind UKZN that's placed at 60, ahead of Rhodes that's at 78, Nice entry of UWC in at 88. But of course behind Pretoria in the 40s, Stellenbosch at 30, Witz at 31, and UCT at 12. But just look at, I mean, goodness, being number 61 in the top 100, in this instance, in the top 1% of our class in Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa, again, is an accolade, an extraordinary accolade. And so to be comfortably a top 10 Africa university in all of these rankings is something for us to celebrate. And as we make our way to 10 years of UJ, these are remarkable milestones that we together have been able to accomplish. And so we had lows last year. We had highs. We continued with our project. And we began, we are beginning to see that our efforts are showing up globally and that we are emerging, okay, wrong word, establishing ourselves as a world-class university, not only in BRICS, but worldwide. And so that's something to be proud about. But it demonstrates last year, demonstrates again, 
that yes, something worthwhile doesn't come easily, it requires effort, but when we put extraordinary effort in, as we've done for nine years, we get extraordinary results. And so, thank you for last year. Thank you for the years before, but thank you especially for last year. It was tough. As I shared with you just briefly, it was tough for me personally. It was tough. And I know it was difficult for each one of you. But look, here we are. Look where we are. And so the year ahead, I personally don't expect a bed of roses. I was listening uh, to radio yesterday, one of these uh, motivational speakers, and I'll stop now in a moment. <clears throat> and he was uh, remarking that, um, in, his, in his remarks, he was suggesting that as human beings we have to drop the childish naivety, in his words, that everyone claps hands for us. That everyone is excited for us when we achieve. That everyone is excited and happy and saying wonderful to us. He says we have to drop that childish naivety. And we have to focus from inside ourselves outward on that which is our purpose in life. Focus on that. Don't be obsessed with those around us, you know. Yes, build relationships, grow networks, continue uh, pursuing with difficulty, yes, pursuing the values of UJ, of conversation, of imagination, of regeneration, and of an ethical foundation. It's not easy, but let's continue along that course. Let's continue to build here a fine university. Let's rise up to, to the challenges each day, as we have demonstrated we can. And let's go forward with confidence. Let's go forward with passion. Let's go forward deeply aware of what we have accomplished. And at the same time aware of what is still possible in the years that lie ahead. So thank you again. and. Uh, all of the very best for the year that lies ahead. Thank you very much. Thank you, Vice-Chancellor. Um, for those of you that don't know me, I'm Rory Ryan. I am Executive Director, Academic Development and Support, and I report to the DBC Academic, Professor Perrick. Um, I want to raise the questions first that uh, incidentally there are translation services available for anyone who requires them. The language unit is here. First question addressed to the VC. Dear VC, looking at the economic crisis and increase in the repo rate, workers cannot afford to buy houses any longer. Hence, they propose to borrow money from their retirement fund pay for the deposit and extra charges relating to housing. How can the university assist in this regard? In other words, is it possible to make a withdrawal from one's own pension reserve? 
Um, perhaps we should ask DVC Strategic Services to give a... But before that, let me just make some, some general um, uh, observations. This is, of course, a matter that um, has been debated at the, um, at the relevant um, fund uh, committees. But, but I think that there is a bigger issue at stake here. The purpose of making an investment in a provident fund or in a pension is to secure your future. It is when you retire that you are in a position to have a retirement that is reasonably comfortable. Therefore, putting, considering putting your future, your future funds in a, an investment that comes with risk. I mean, we've seen the housing market. We've seen what's happened to the housing market over the last decade, right? In the last few years, it's been difficult to sell a house. So when you have to liquidate that asset in order to finance your retirement, you're unable to liquidate that asset. And then you find yourself in an impossible situation. And so that places there for considerable challenge on the employer, or at least on the, on the employer in respect of the employer's role in those trust funds. And that's the question we will deliberate on, on Tuesday at the Management Executive Committee, because I have a personal view. And if, if you've heard what I've, I'm suggesting, that I, have, I take a dim view, notwithstanding the challenges of, uh, associated with the economy, I personally take a very dim view on us authorizing, giving the go-ahead for our members of staff to make decisions that may be costly, extremely costly in the long run. But Derek? Chair, I can't really improve on what you've just said, except just to confirm the factual statement. Last year, uh, we had one of our staff members who made an impassioned plea to the Vice-Chancellor that she be allowed to, uh, to utilize a portion of her pension benefits in the UJ Pension Fund uh, to secure a, uh, a home loan uh, for herself. Uh, this matter was debated in the, uh, amongst the Board of Trustees of the UJ Pension Fund, and the consensus view was, was along the lines that the Vice-Chancellor has just uh, elaborated on. The matter that will serve at uh, Tuesday's NEC regards the Provident Fund, where an outside um, home loan agency uh, has made a proposal that uh, members of the Provident Fund uh, be allowed to secure a home loan <coughs> against the guarantee of their benefits in the Provident Fund. And again, uh, there's no withdrawal from the Provident Fund, but if there's a default, then there will be. Um, and again, the same moral and quite frankly legal obligation uh, towards our employees arises. There are also some pretty severe provisions in the National Credit Acts, which we have to be very mindful of. Dr. Singh reminded me of them this morning. 
So the matter, as the VC has said, will be discussed within the context of the Provident Fund on Tuesday. Um, but as far as the pension fund, the UJ pension fund is concerned, the trustees late last year took a firm view, uh, much, uh, as I say, along the same lines as the Vice-Chancellor, that we will not, for the reasons stated, uh, consider home loans against your pension benefits in the fund. It's a very difficult issue, um, and and uh, as I say, the, the MS, as, as Derek has, has indicated, will deliberate further on the matter relating to the Provident Fund, um, but I, I really encourage us to think carefully about about these matters, um, and that we, that, we, that we make decisions that we can defend um, uh, at the end of the day. Well, thank you for that, VC and DVC. Uh, the next question is, I would like to know from the Vice-Chancellor as to what strategies are in place to attract and retain academic staff. The reasons for my question are based on the fact that we're losing a lot of academic staff and we're not replacing them. As a result of the few staff members left, I have to endure a lot of workload. As an example, I was given five subjects to lecture in a week this year, and these are spread across all three campuses. I had to protest, at, and my workload was reduced to three subjects. How can we aspire to be the best if we load our academics like this? On top of this massive workload, one is expected to do research, publish, and further study for those with master's degrees. I hope my question will be addressed. I think the uh, situation in the faculties in this regard is quite unequal in that some faculties are are not losing staff as much as other um, faculties. And I am aware in the Faculty of Management there has been quite a lot of attrition of staff who are wooed by other institutions and with, with whom we, with these institutions, we cannot really compete in terms of our own uh, promotion and appointment criteria. I think uh, given that this question is from the Faculty of Management, Perhaps, Danielle, you might want to speak briefly to Sure. Vice-Chancellor, Professor Ryan. Um, colleagues, my, my colleague in marketing management is telling us, is saying, VC, uh, we feel the overload. We battle to fill our positions. And uh, you know we now, from this year onwards, starting to teach at DFC as well. Man, we're feeling the strain of this. Is there something that we can do about this? Because we would like to continue with our qualifications and get there and move from the top 4% to the top 3%. This is our issue. Now, I can understand his dilemma. Uh, in this particular department, uh, which is a very scarce field, uh, eight colleagues have resigned or retired over the last four years. Um, four, uh, six of them were poached by the FET college sector, and they were appointed as HODs, uh, where they get substantial salaries now with the up in the investment in that sector. Um, and uh, two went to other universities, one retired, and the others were poached by government as assistant directors. So we are in a very competitive environment as far as these skills are concerned. Over the years, we have managed to fill six of those eight positions, and there are currently two vacancies left. Now, what is very important is when you would like to move from the top 4% to the top 3% of universities in the world, you just don't get a warm body and put them there. We hunt for the best possible talent to grow the stature and the excellence of our university. And that is what I'm actively hunting for. 
and uh, we already got one candidate that we think would make a huge difference. But the practical implication is that one lecturer teaches approximately four modules per semester in a faculty. So there are currently eight modules that we have to take care of internally. And these eight modules are now divided among the 12 lecturers in that department. And it roughly boils down to one additional module uh, per, per person. In this particular case, with my colleague, we have said, man, we see that you are progressing with your PhD, therefore we will take one away and leave with only three modules per semester, which is very fair. But still, you know, if you have to teach and work and do research and travel across campuses, it is kind of difficult. And we're all aware of the difficulties that we face in Edward and campus. But what could make it easier for lecturers, and this is not just in the three departments actually affected by, by this, but across faculties, is if we could have a simple thing like designated parking for roaming lecturers so you don't have to spend extra time looking for parking, and maybe office space where they can consult with their students and just come to rest and work in between periods. These are simple things, but they make a huge difference in, in, in a lecturer's lives. So um, we had uh, a visit to the campus previously on this uh, with marketing management that I personally engaged with the team there. And these are the options that we have explored. We fully understand the frustration and we are actively dealing with it. Thank you, BC. Thank you for that response. First from Lynn. Uh, the next question is, dear BC, this is my third year working at UJ. Every year my contract gets renewed, but I'm still employed under temporary staff. I don't have any benefits, uh, etc. Um, I love working for the university and I started working here because I was told there are lots of opportunities for me. Um, I can't apply for any vacant positions because I don't have the right qualifications and all the vacant positions are advertised as BEE. What are my chances of a future at the University of Johannesburg? I know the university brief comment from me is strongly engaged in um, attempting to eliminate all, all posts whereby uh, a, a long-term need uh, in, in the university is serviced by means of uh, a repeated temporary appointments. That is contrary to the spirit of legislation and um, as this person has indicated that she continues to be employed but she does not receive the necessary benefits. I, I would recommend a chat with uh, someone in HR would be a good idea, but perhaps the executive director of HR can respond briefly. In terms of the question, there are some general things that I would like to respond to and then specifics of uh, raised by Michelle. Firstly, in terms of the leave provision and why it's different for uh, temporary and permanent employees, we are all governed by the Basic Conditions of Employment Act, which says that they qualify for a specified number of days. Temporary employees qualify for a specified number of days that they work. And UJ has aligned itself completely to that act. The, the, the challenge arises because of the, uh, the, the shutdown in December and people need to balance the leave they take then with the leave that they have in December. But there is no unfair practice. UJ is fully compliant with that. 
On the second issue about why the contract has been renewed three times, this particular employee is employed in a project. Now we all know that whilst we are committed to uh, not abusing employees and renewing their contracts continually, if people are employed in a project, they will not get a, t a permanent post because a project is time bound. So we cannot employ this person, <coughs> Michelle, in a full time uh, permanent capacity because she works in a project and her employment is until the end of 2014. However, many training and development opportunities have been provided to, to her to allow her to gain wider experience, to get more um, expertise in terms of uh, training and development. And with, with the metric, we must just say also that we are noticing that there's an increasing number of applicants that we get for vacancies that we advertise. And the caliber of people that are applying for positions is really uh, you know, good. So to Michelle, I want to say that you are competing with a lot of other, uh, firstly a bigger pool, and then a lot of other very competent applicants. On the BEE, uh, I would also like to respond and say that we have an equity plan for UJ, but we are not fixed on targets. We are flexible where we find that they are deserving cases. Those appointments have been made. I, I wonder if I could, could comment on please please sit down. Yeah. Um, I wonder if I could pick up on this issue because it's part uh, Rory of a of a bigger issue as well. But on the BEE issue, um, if you look at the management executive committee, it's not a BEE management executive committee. It's a fairly diverse committee. I think where we fault on in the MEC, it's on gender. Um, but if you look at the MEC, um, and I don't want to embarrass them by asking them to stand up, you, you, you can immediately see that we have a diverse team, right? Um, who are doing an outstanding job. If we look at the executive leadership group now, including the executive deans and the executive directors, it's an even more diverse group. If we extend that to heads of departments and directors, it becomes almost completely unrepresentative. And so that's where our big challenge is in terms of by 2020 making some progress in that space. And so I just want to counter the idea that, uh, again, agree with, with, with Marla, the, 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 that, that the university, in fact, is while it has an equity plan, it is pursuing that plan with, yes, with purpose, but also with great care. It is not blindly pursuing that equity plan at the expense of achieving our short, medium, and long-term goals of the university. But turning briefly to the issue of professional and support services staff, which is, I guess, obliquely related to this issue. And a concern that has been with us for some time now, that professional and support staff do not get the opportunity to be promoted. So I posed again this question to Marla earlier this week, and she shared with me some interesting insights. So yes, while the promotion path is different from the promotion path or possibilities, 
of that of an academic. An academic, now we've got an additional 70 odd associate, uh, almost said associate, assistant lecturers coming into the university over the next two years. So you can progress to lecturer, you can progress to a senior lecturer, you can progress to associate professor, you can progress to a full professor, senior professor. We don't have a similar path in respect of professional and support staff. But listen to this statistic. Last year we promoted just around 40 academics. Guess what? We made close to 100 internal promotions in the professional and support service staff division. How's that? So it may be the case that in organogram, in structural terms, there is no pathway to go to supervisor because there's already a supervisor in place. There's no extra supervisor position available. When I'm a supervisor, I can't become a manager because I have to wait for so-and-so for Seaport to die or to leave, <laughs> right? Uh, so there's no, there's no way I can go up because there's no additional position. Similarly, I can't become a senior manager because Jane is in that position, right? So there's no similar promotion path, but what, we, what you will find when you study that group of a hundred or so of colleagues who have been promoted, professional and support services staff, they apply for a post internally. May not be in their division or in their area of work, not area of work, in their, what do you call it? Call it division, yes. But they are able to apply for a promotion in another division or academic department in the university. And that is because the university has a preference to make internal appointments in many of these important occupational and professional categories in the university. And so I think we, it, it's, it's worthwhile taking into account that yes, there is no, the answer to that question is there is no formal path, but in fact, two and a half times more promotions occur along the professional support services path than along the, the academic uh, 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 promotion path. And I think it's worth reflecting on. Very interesting. Are there any other comments on, on this matter, the matter of the career paths of professional and administrative staff? I would like to um, ask you for your views on the... With your permission, thanks. Um, the Global Excellence and Stature Rollout. Um, as you may know, that this, this has occupied the minds of the, the MEC and the uh, ELG for uh, more than a year and with greater and greater intensity and resulted last year in a decision by Council to release a very large amount of money, I think in the region of 600 million, over the next six or seven years, uh, starting with an amount of 80 million in 2014. Um, and you might you might ask what the purpose of this massive new initiative is, and obviously it is to attempt to increase our position from being in the top four percent to being in the top three percent, which is is no mean feat and no easy task. 
um, as one moves to the apex of the triangle, so the competition is, is more and more fierce. And it is for that reason that I think if we were ever to aspire to want to be in the top 1%, it would take resources and energy and effort of such extraordinary uh, amounts that it would probably be beyond um, our grasp, certainly at this stage. Um, now, why would one want to aspire to be in the top 3%? It's not, it's not simply a matter of bettering our game, of increasing our own quality, of feeling pride that we are a better ranked university. All kinds of benefits accrue as a result of one um, moving up the ladder. One of them is that one will attract many more applicants and um, these applicants will often come with a much higher um, APS score or a much a better secondary schooling. Not that we always want to um, take those at the very apex of the school system uh, in that we, we will not pursue a completely elitist line on, this, on, on the matter of enrollment. Um, it also attracts a greater number of international candidates for uh, the university in, insofar as, as applicants nowadays are, are on the internet and they're checking out the status and the standing of universities and they're making their choices accordingly and um, given the, the um, poor position of the RAND, the value proposition of UJ in terms of stature and in terms of cost becomes increasingly uh, attractive, especially if we move to the top 3%. Um, it also attracts greater number of partnerships because a number of universities have been instructed, a number of universities at the top end of the system have been instructed by their, their councils and, and governing bodies to seek relationships with other universities only within their, their similar band of universities. In other words, attempt to trade up. If you cannot trade up, trade equal, but do not trade down. And it's, it's quite a cruel system, but that's in fact what seems to be emerging in many countries. Um, and so if, if we want to pursue uh, a greater number of, of international relationships with universities that we are very respectful of, then uh, we need in turn to be to achieve uh, respect from them. Um, I think the ranking systems also attract a, a whole lot of more, uh, or rather donors, donor funding, donor funders uh, are looking very closely at the ranking of universities when dispersing money. Um, and this is particularly evident, for example, in the European Union, but I think it's quite widespread throughout the university system that um, donors are far more eager to place their funds in universities of high reputation um, and, and demonstrable reputation than they are those that are emerging. So I think the plan to move from the top four to the top three becomes eminently reasonable and, and desirable for us. The, the issue is, the issues I want to ask you are, how do you feel about this, this initiative and how do you, um, do you have any comments or questions about the rollout of, of this initiative in terms of its resources? 
before we go there, can I, can I, I'll, I'll just make a couple of brief remarks and then ask uh, Anjana to share just briefly on the rollout and then we can take some questions if that's okay, Rory. Um, this is of course a very controversial and difficult issue, the issue of rankings. Um, I say that because there is this challenging national role, and it's damn challenging, of responding to the national project of your nation, and at the same time wishing to become a world-class university. So practically, as, as you've alluded to, Rory, we sit with a situation where the balance between undergrad and postgrad, going back to an earlier question, is, is, is quite significant. The fact that as we speak, 40, just over 42,000 undergrad students have registered. We're planning to register some 7,300 postgrad students. But of course, a lot of those postgrad students also require still a lot of support. I'm not saying masters and doctoral students don't require support, but they do. But honor students require more support than masters and doctoral students. And so the fact is that that balance of 42 to seven and a half, call it seven and a half, it's unlikely to change in the next decade. It's unlikely to change unless we make a decision that says contrary to national requirements of the University of Johannesburg continuing to produce 8,500 to 9,000 undergrads as graduates per year, that we actually think that we should have 50% postgrad and 50% undergrad. Can you see what that does? By the way, where do we get that 50% postgrad students? So VITS down the road is about 30,000 students. 10,000 of them are roughly postgrad. Their ambition is to get it to 40% and then to 50%. And so can we do something like that at UJ? It's unlikely. And so if we embrace that national responsibility of contributing to nurturing highly skilled South Africans, as we are doing, as we are doing very well, and as we are seeing 95% of them getting a job within 12 months, half of them getting a job before they graduate. We're doing very well on that front. And so it's likely we will continue to do that, and we have to embrace that responsibility. It does mean that we have to have realistic ambitions. I don't want to say what it is. I think we're saying top 3% is, is reasonable. Top 1%, there's a view that's emerging among some of the leading thinkers in this field that in the next decade, in the next decade, the top 80 are going to consolidate that you're really going to have the top 80 to top 100 and the rest of us. Because these are truly global universities, because they have a significant 
balance of undergrad, postgrad. So, a Harvard, as a matter of interest, I always remark, Harvard's research output is the equivalent of our country's total research output. 22 universities, not the startups of course, 22 universities and our science institutions, put them all together, they're the equivalent of Harvard University's output. Right? Just It's worth thinking about. Right? And why is it able to do that? It's able to do it because it's, it's a magnet for top talent. Top students, world-class academic, it's a magnet for that. Right? Because it's able to pay. The best we can pay our top professors, as we do, is in the region of 1 to 1.2 million rands a year. We may push that with the distinguished professors that we will be appointing to 1.5 and, and thereabouts. Right? Given the rand, what does that convert to? Okay, make it even a 10 rand rand. It's $150,000. We're not in the game. We're not in the game. Right? To attract, as Harvard does, that kind of top talent. And for that matter, as our colleagues in Singapore and Hong Kong are able to attract top talent. And so the view is that these universities are going to consolidate. They're going to become stronger over the next decade. And then you will have the rest of us. There will be little flow, in my own view, between numbers 300 to number 100. Those universities, one will move up 10 positions, another move out 10 positions. They're not going to change much in that band. And so it means that the startups or the new kids on the block will be competing for positions number 300 to 800. Was it 400? Did I say 300? 400 roughly to 800. The new kids on the block, that's the game they're going to be playing, I'm suggesting. And they have to play in, they will play in that game because they're balancing national responsibilities with their global ambitions. And so that's the, the issues that, that, that uh, confound us, um, difficult as they are. And of course, the final observation is, so if you want to play in this world-class space, you, UJ. By the way, what's your unique contribution? Two years ago, I wrote a fa read, a, uh, wrote, read a fascinating book, The Wannabe University. Wannabe, wannabe like Harvard, wannabe like Stanford. Everybody wants to be because they believe that they can be in the top 100 or in the top 20. Last year when we visited, visited one of our peers, Covenant University in Nigeria, um, <laughs> the colleagues there said that now that, they, now that their church is the third largest church in the world, their visionary has instructed them to become the number three university in the world. This is a university that's ranked probably 2,500, right? I mean, we are ranked 600 to 650, and we don't have ambitions to be in the top three. The top three percent, possibly, but the, not the top three. But Anjana, just some quick thoughts?
colleagues. Um, I'm just going to talk very briefly about the Global Excellence and Stature uh, Initiative. Uh, Prafrori has already indicated that the uh, Council has approved that we set aside serious money, I'm talking serious money, to drive our Global Excellence and Stature ambitions. And it's not just that we have the desire, but we also don't realize that in order to drive that, we need to make an investment. And this year alone, we've set aside 80 million to support the Global Excellence and Stature program. Now, what does this program consist of? Well, it's, it's to look at how do we enhance <coughs> academic excellence and stature on the one end. I mean, Global Excellence and Stature, I must emphasize, doesn't just include the academic component. The actual document, and I think uh, Vice Chancellor, as soon as we've gone through council again, that we must separate it to all stuff. Because you would see within that document that it covers a number of areas. It covers research excellence, it covers teaching and learning, it covers issues around internationalization, fitness for purpose, um, reputation, and what am I missing? Students. Students. So there's a lot of um, indicators there in terms of what we want to drive towards 2020 and 2025. But let me just focus now on, on, on what we call the GES initiative in terms of promoting and advancing academic excellence and stature. We've set aside 80 million, of which around 10, uh, 30 million 15 million this year would be set aside to appoint uh, distinguished chairs. Now these distinguished chairs are really distinguished. I mean we do have a number of distinguished scholars in, in, within the university, but these are super distinguished scholars, <laughs> if I can call it such. I mean these are scholars that in the NRF system, in the South African system, would be all A-rated. Um, in the international system, they will have a very high age index. We've identified 10 areas where we believe uh, we've got some strategic strengths within the university. We need to play to those strengths and we need to add to those strengths by looking at recruiting distinguished scholars. And just to give you some examples, example nanotechnology, uh, telecommunications, uh, sustainability, mega cities being part of that, engineering management, childhood education, are some of the areas that we've identified, we want to attract... Uh, Anjana, since, we, since we're on the campus design, what, what, what's it, industrial design? Industrial design. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's another area. So what we've tried to do is just not concentrate only on the traditional science, engineering, and technology, but it allows for the spread, but building on the current strengths within the institution as well. So we've now gone into a process of putting together an advertisement Watch the space. They're going to be a huge advertisement from UJ talking about these distinguished chairs. Um, in addition to that, we've also set aside some really good money for the appointment of visiting uh, distinguished professors or distinguished visiting professors. Now, these are people who are not going to be necessarily in the on the campus full time for the entire year or two years. They may be people who are abroad want to spend some time, three months, maybe four months, at UJ, where they do really serious collaborative work with some of our top scholars at UJ as well. 
they will also be engaging with students as well. So there's money set aside for that. Um, and uh, in addition to that, we have set aside some serious money again for masters and doctoral fellowships. Um, there's about 100,000 for, for, for masters, bursaries and fellowships, 150,000 for doctoral uh, fellowships. And these are for, for our own students who are studying towards them, but also linked to these kind of flagship areas. Uh, we also have set aside money for postdocs and super postdocs. So we're looking at in the region of about, about 200-220,000 for our postdocs, around 250,000 per annum for our super postdocs. And then we also recognize that we need to begin to develop uh, some serious scholarship and uh, the next generation of academics, particularly in these areas. So we've, for this year alone, we've created 50 associate lecturer posts. Now, many of you probably have been involved in discussions at faculty levels around the appointment of these associate lecturers. Now, these associate lecturers are our own postgraduate students. They registered for a master's or a doctoral uh, qualification. Uh, they spread across the university, so it's not just one faculty that gets the majority. Um, they are uh, valued at 250,000 rands per annum, and they're over a three-year contract. So here you've got a, a serious scholar. We've just awarded one yesterday to a student who's doing his master's in nuclear physics. Um, uh, we've given one in architecture. We've given in uh, graphic design, I think it was. So there, there are areas that we have been supporting. Uh, we've allocated 40 of those to date. And so there's already 40 additional staff members in the, the system. And I say staff members because they will be part of our academic staff. Although they're associate lecturers, they are part and parcel of our academic board. Uh, we've already <coughs> allocated 40 of those, of which about 25 have been equity, 10 have been white South African, and five have been international. So I think, you know, the earlier comment around issues around equity, you can see that we're not just simply saying that the funds that we are setting aside is only intended for black South Africans, no way. Okay. We're looking to see um, um, in terms of fairness and, uh, and to deal with also our own uh, imperatives within the institution. But we've made quite a bit of an indent. It's been well received within the faculties and I'm sure that this support is going to go a long way towards easing also some of the, the lecture loads and, and burdens within the faculty. We have an additional 20, I think, have been allocated, no, 10 more allocated next year. We've got 50 this year, another 10 next year, and then another 10 the following year. So total, 70 in total, that will be allocated in the next three to five year period. And these are all three year appointments. Any questions about that? Just a quick one, Professor Morala, you want to say anything? Since you're a co-driver. Um, not much, uh, but just to say that uh, one of uh, the reasons why we're embarking on this exercise is so that we can be able to increase the impact of our university. What do I mean by impact? When people publish papers, for example, uh, it should not just end up as a paper. It should have a 
impact in society. So in some rural community, in some village, you must be able to use some of the relics that we, we actually generate. Or another researcher from another institution should also be able to use uh, 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 the knowledge that we generate uh, to advance society. So that is, uh, and in order to be able to do that, we need to expand our international collaboration. So this uh, distinguished visiting uh, uh, professors are actually going to do that, to expand uh, uh, our collaboration with other researchers from, from other countries. I think that's what.